if you are normally down in Kids View downstairs um, in the children's ministry, would you stand up right now? All right. We are glad you're up here. Woohoo! We do that a few times a year. It's great to have families to be able to worship together, and we're glad that you're here today. Um, that is a great kind of transition. We start a new series next week. It's a series that's title is Really God? And it's all about, uh, it really kind of uh, expands on today's message uh, that we're going to get to in just a second. It's about what it looks like for us to live in a culture that's constantly changing, where everything changes. The, on July 12th, we're going we're to kind of lay a biblical foundation that's going to cover the next three weeks and on the, on the 19th, we're going to talk about what it looks like to live in a culture um, uh, as the culture changes as a result of the Supreme Court decision from a week ago and, um, and what that looks like for us. The following week on the 26th, we're going to talk about what it looks like to live in a world and to live in a culture where there is this threat of Islam worldwide to followers of Jesus and what that looks like for us from, from Scripture, what Scripture tells us about that, how to interact, how to approach that kind of world. And on August 5th, we're going to talk about what it looks like in terms of sexual relationships, uh, what it looks like in a world where that seems to be changing all over the place, and, and where we go from that, or where we go with that, from God's perspective. Really, God, what is it that you really want us to do? I share that to say to uh, parents who have their kids up here, those, th- those uh, three weeks, uh, next week, gr- great week to be up here. But on the 19th, 26th, and 5th of August, it's probably a good time to make sure that your kids are downstairs. Um, unless you want them to be here specifically for those weeks. It's kind of a PG-13 um, warning in advance. All right? So uh, take that as you will. Today is a special, ga- a special day. We have a special guest speaker whose name is Mike Winter. Mike's going to come up in just a second. Mike and his wife, Kim, have been married for over 25 years. They have 10, count them, 10 children. Um, you'll learn lots of lessons with 10 children, right? Uh, neat, neat thing. Mike is the uh, director of the Christian Businessmen's Association? Connection. Connection. Now, I knew, I knew it had a Christmas Businessmen's Connection here in the Lansing area. Been doing that for a lot of years. He has past history as an as a associate pastor. And I'm so appreciate, appreciative that he is here to speak today. And um, for many of you, he'll look familiar. I appreciate him especially because uh, he was the guy several years ago when, as a, as a church, we experienced a very difficult time on very short notice. Mike came and spoke. And, um, and spoke into that time in a special way. God used him at that time, and, uh, and I'm grateful for that. Thanks for coming uh, those years ago in the way that God used you. Um, if you would now, welcome Mike Winter, uh, and listen, give him your hearts. Appreciate the whistle. You obviously haven't heard the message. Uh, I want to introduce my wife, Kim. People ask us, you can stand up, babe, if you want. We just got three children with us today, unfortunately. Uh, <clears throat> she, she brought all ten into those world one at a time. Um, so uh, we're thankful for that, and uh, thankful that you have Family Sunday, and thanks for letting me be here. On your 175th van- anniversary of the first service, I got it wrong. I thought it was only 75, but uh, 
175, which is about 65 years after the founding of this country, if my uh, public school math is any, any good. So that's amazing. That's a long and rich history. I was asked, though, after the first service, I could do everything different the second service. Uh, so I'm not sure what that means. But uh, apparently it didn't go so well. So we're going to start a little differently. And I want to read you a little history about those forefathers who helped uh, found this, the greatest nation uh, probably the world's ever known in, in so many ways. And it continues to be the greatest nation in the world. And I realize uh, that creates an offense to basically anybody under 30 to hear those words uh, because that's not what we teach anymore. We don't teach this is the greatest nation. And it's the greatest nation for many, many reasons. It does the greatest good in the world. It has the greatest Christian history in the world. Uh, it's just been uh, the greatest and freest nation the world's ever known. Uh, there's many, many reasons why this really is the greatest nation in the world. But I want to read a little bit about what some of these signers of the Declaration uh, experienced. There were 56 signers. Five of those signers were captured by the British as traitors, and then they were tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the Revolutionary War. They signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. What kind of men were they? Twenty-four were lawyers and jurists. Eleven were merchants. Nine were farmers and large plantation owners, men of means, well-educated. But they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that the penalty would be death if they were captured. Carter Braxton, a Virginia wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in Congress without pay. Wouldn't that be nice if we restored that? And his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers looted the properties of Dillery, Hall, Clymer, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson, Jr., whom the Bible company is named after, noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters. He quietly urged General George Washington to open fire. The home was destroyed, and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife, and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His field and his mill were laid to waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves, returning home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. That's just some of the founders. I hear all that this morning because it's good news. It represents the commitment, the sacrifice that those who went before us had. And I want to argue is what is necessary for us to return this nation to its original Christian heritage. Not everybody in the beginning was a a vibrant believer, but the culture reflected a vibrant faith. And really, it's been on our watch these last 60 years or so when you say that we've lost much of that. Most of us would say in 1776, the culture was way more reflective of a Christian virtue than it was today. Or even 1876. Or even 1976. The culture, it seems, is continuing to go downhill in terms of its Christian uh, honor, in terms of its Christian following. 
And that's on our watch, that's on our time, and we're responsible, I think, in part, to turn that around with God's help and for his glory. And so I want to talk about that a little bit, beginning with that Supreme Court decision, as, as many were talking about that last week. I got to thinking in my own, in my own heart, in my own mind, what are we most upset about? Were we, were we mostly upset about that decision that the Supreme Court made? Or were we more upset that these past 60 years have seen a constant waning of Christian value and influence in our culture? Does it, does it grieve and break our hearts that our culture continues to move away from God? Or does we get angry at little decisions like what the Supreme Court made that reflect where the culture is? You know, in Ezekiel's day, uh, Ezekiel was grieving over where Jerusalem was, and they're on the brink of being completely destroyed. And in Ezekiel 9, 4, God says he's going to send a guy down, and the guy has a, an ink pen and, and a jar. And he says, I want you to mark on the foreheads everyone who grieves over the sins of Jerusalem. I don't know how many that would be today if he had the same idea. But this morning I want to talk a little bit about what can we do to bring back this Christian culture because I think this time for us is maybe our best time. It's our most opportune time. It is perhaps too easy to be a Christian when the whole culture is Christian. But now that the game's changed and it's a lot different, we have a great opportunity. I think we have the same opportunity the first church had because I don't think Rome was a whole lot different. Rome had a high abortion rate. They didn't have the technology we had, but they still committed many abortions or they abandoned children left and right all the time. And the church began by collecting those abandoned children and raising them. And orphanages were started by the church. Likewise, homosexuality was prevalent. It was promoted. It was grandiose. And the church said, not in this house. Not in this house. It's not something that God ordains. And so they began to change the culture by changing lives. And how did they do that? How did the first church, which began in a culture that had no Christian influence, right, because Christianity is just starting, how did that church become so effective that for thousands of years, the culture, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in South America or whether it's right here in North America, had this reflection of God's values. If you ever go to the Capitol, any, any statue over 150 years old almost in this country has biblical writings on it. Our own Lansing Capitol, in the cornerstone, it says, in God we trust. And all that today is being swept away. And it's not important necessarily that statues have Christian uh, writings on them, because God doesn't care about that. What God cares about is his writing is on the heart of every person in this nation and across the world. And you and I are the means to make that happen. So I want to read from Acts 2 this morning to begin our time together because I think that takes us all the way back to where the first church began. And I have four uh, principles I think will help us recapture this nation if we'll commit ourselves like those founders committed to the founding of this country. So it's a rather lengthy time. Please indulge me. It's Acts 2. It will start at verse 22. It's, it's kind of in the middle of Paul's or uh, Peter's rather Peter's first uh, sermon, if you will. So here we go. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. I want to unpack parts of that. I think there's four things that the Lord would have us Uh, pull from that this morning in order to help us recapture this world, this country and particularly for Christ. And the first thing is is out of verse 46. It says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in the homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts. The first thing the early church did was it sought the Lord. They had a hunger for God. They made seeking God their highest and greatest priority. One of our issues, I think our core issue, is we have a a great ignorance of the Word of God. While the information about the Word of God is more abundant than perhaps it's ever been, we ourselves are struggling to spend any time in it, to read it, to study it, to meet together and discuss its application. It's really not any more complicated than that. Our fellowship should look like that. We should read and study the Scriptures. We should meet together to discuss what it means and then talk to each other about how will we apply it this week together and individually. When God came to earth, he'd spent 40 days getting ready to release his ministry to get started. So he spent 40 days in fasting. And as he's 
in battle now with the great enemy of humanity, the great enemy of God. The, the enemy says, gee, you know, the story would be pretty bad if after 40 days it ends with Savior drops over dead from starvation. So really, if you're God, if you're really all that, take these stones and turn them into bread because after all, you should eat, right? I mean, it only makes sense. And God, who's re- who says to us, so by virtue of his, his response to the enemy, says, listen, my food is, is, is to do the will of him. I don't eat on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from my Father's mouth. You and I have to make the word of God even more important than our own daily food. In our house, we have this thing called no Bible, no breakfast. You have to read the Bible or you don't come to the table. Uh, now, we're not 100% about that, but we're, we're pretty good with that. We expect all those guys, even those little guys, as soon as they can read, to begin reading the scriptures so they can know the Lord their God. Because here's the reality. I don't want them to define God by my life. Now, I need to be an example. But the reality is the one true God is so awesome, so wonderful, so beautiful, so glorious, so great, and he's given us his word so we can know him. They need to know him. I'm going to mess it up. I mess it up all the time. I want them to know who the one true God really is. And God has given us the book so we can do that. We're without excuse. Everything we need to know about God, he's given to us in the book so that we can know him personally, intimately, and obey him completely. That's amazing. So Jesus said that, and he also said, my food is to do the will of my father. Now, because we're ignorant of the scriptures, because we don't study the scriptures like the forefathers did, because we're not diligent, we begin to have bad thinking occur in our lives. Let me just give you a couple examples of this bad thinking. One of those bad thoughts is we're born good. There's a whole slew of people in the church, maybe some of you, believe we're born good. We're basically good out of the box. There's nothing corrupt or wrong with that one-year-old, that two-year-old, that three-year-old. They're just innocent. They're beautiful. They're good. And they are good in the sense that God created all things and said that's very good. But their nature, their character is not good. That's why they have a temper tantrum. That's why you don't teach them to disobey you. You have to teach them to obey you. The problem with thinking that we're all good is that we develop in that. We begin to think, do I need a Savior? Maybe if I'm 51% good, that's good enough. What do I need a Savior for if I'm basically good? The only people that need a Savior is people that are basically bad. And, of course, that's not me. And so we find ourselves moving away from the Savior because we have this false belief that we're basically good. Scriptures paint the opposite picture. It says we come out of the box, out into this world corrupt. We're dead, it says. We're born sinful. That doesn't mean God despises us, but it immediately says to us, you need a Savior. You need to repent. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You've got to come to Jesus in order to have life eternal. That's it. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. From God's perspective, that's God's way. And we can decide any way we want. But the king says there's one way, and you're either on it or you're not on it. In fact, he acknowledges the way is broad, and many are on the way that leads to death. But the way is narrow. Difficult is the road that leads to life, and few, few are on it. It's amazing God says that. Few are on that road. That thinking also spirals into this thinking. I can get to heaven by, being, by doing good deeds, and that all the religions get there. All the religions get there. We're, we're in an age of tolerance. Man, that's the God of this age. And so what happens is that all roads get there. Well, if all roads get there, why do I need to follow any one road? I can walk any road. 
Because they're all going to give me the same place, right? They all say the same thing. Basically, just be good. There is a God. He loves you. And he has a wonderful plan for your life and you can go to heaven. But that's not God's way. God says there's one name under heaven given to men which we must be saved. If we know the scriptures, we know that. It doesn't even make sense. All the other religions paint a picture of God that is horrible. It's terrible. It's awful. If you're any kind of student of that, you'd know that. It's not good to be a Muslim. Going to heaven as a Muslim is horrendous. It's not good. It's not a great way. Same with the Hindus. Terrible way to get there. Besides that, our God says, listen, listen. When you pray, this is the name I want you to use. Call me Father. Now, what good father would have children and not want them to know who he is specifically? He doesn't want somebody else for his children to call Father. He wants us to call the one true God Father. And he wants you and I to connect people to the one true God. And so that's our mission. That's our job. That's our, his expectation. Because in his choice, he has to send angels to do that. He sends you and I. It's not a very good program, if you ask me. I think he's got a terrible marketing department. But that's his business. I mean, he's hiring guys like me. He's hiring people like us. It's amazing. So we have to know the word of God if we're going to have the mind of God. Here's a twit for you tweeters. I could say that, but not three times fast. Not knowing God's will leads to not doing God's will. Not knowing God's will leads to not doing God's will, and we got to understand that. Because if we don't know His will, we think we're basically good. We're not. We've got to know the will of God. And not doing God's will is disobedience. And from God's perspective, that's a big deal. It's a big deal because He crucified His Son. God is committed to dealing with disobedience. We're fools to not think He is. His own son prayed to garden. Father, if you can change this uh, program we're on, let's do it. And the father said, what? Nope. You're going to the cross, dude. He's committed to dealing with our rebellion all the way to the death of his son. Let's not think for a minute God's not serious about this stuff. He's just saying, I'm willing to make an exchange with you right now. I'll exchange my son's righteousness for your disobedience. And I'll exchange your disobedience for his righteousness. It's a great program. We've got to get on it. So uh, we need, first of all, to seek the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If we really are serious about God is God, doesn't it make sense that we'd want to get to know him? And if he's given us the book and his Holy Spirit and each other to do that, why wouldn't we be diligent about that? Those guys met daily. Let's do it. So here's two things we can do to practically seek God more. We've got to start here. We've got to seek God more. And the first thing is just get yourself a Bible reading plan. I give you a free one at knowgodcoach.com. It's not the best, but it's available. But, you know, the Bible app has 1,000 of them, 10,000 of them probably. Bible reading plans are a dime a dozen. Grab a plan, start reading. And the reason I like a plan is that you just start working your way through the Scriptures. You need to know all the Scriptures. If you started today just with the book of Isaiah and read through the book of Malachi, all the prophets, that, it speaks to this time like nothing else. It's amazing. The prophets are outstanding and well worth our time reading, investigating, studying. Likewise, in the beginning, our, our history with creation, the whole scripture for the whole man. God gives it all to us and expects us all to know it. Secondly, while you're reading it, start meeting with some people. 
either in a small group and or grab a couple people. How do we work this thing out? Let's just start meeting together and encouraging one another. I speak to a lot of men's groups, and you know what? Every men's group has the same verse, right? This is our theme verse. What is it? As one man sharpens another, so iron sharpens iron, you know, because we're, we're like that. But what, how does that work? How does iron sharpen iron? It clashes, sparks fly, things happen. Really? Are guys really, are you in a group where you're really getting after it with God, with another person, where sparks are flying, you're uncomfortable, you're not happy that someone's pushing on you a little bit to follow Christ more? It happens on teams. It happens in the military. It needs to happen in the house a lot more. We need to be the toughest, the baddest, the bravest, the most courageous. All right, the second thing the church did, the first thing they sought the Lord, the second thing is in Acts 2.40. And Acts 2.40 says, And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. The second thing we have to do is we have to separate from this world. We cannot love the world and love God. That's what he says. We cannot love this world and love God. In 1 John, he talks about three things of loving the world. He says the flesh and our eyes and our pride. I want to break those down into three things. I think what he means is we can't love the world and its comforts. In 1 John 2, 15 and 16, we cannot love the world and its comforts. And you and I are prone to that. We spend our whole life trying to get more comfortable. We don't like discomfort. Whatever it is, from mosquitoes to a car that doesn't work, we want comfort. We want to eat when we're hungry. We've got to escape the world's comforts. We're not all about the comforts of this world. doesn't mean life has to be hard, but that's not our pursuit. Or the second thing, he says, we have to uh, not love its coveted trophies. That's the lust of the eyes. The world has some coveted trophies. It's power, it's position, it's possessions. But that's not us. All that stuff is temporary. All the position, all the possessions, all the power means nothing a billion years from now. And that's God's perspective. You and I are eternal living creatures. We're not here for 50 or 60 years. This is nothing. This is nothing. You and I are forever beings with a forever God who promises us a whole new world. That's why we don't get all caught up in saving the planet. It's okay not to pollute, but God says, I'm burning the thing, right? The end of this thing is God burns it all. So it's vain to give our lives to something temporary. Rather, God says, give your lives to that which lasts forever and for which you'll be forever rewarded. That's the wise man. And the last thing is it's conquest. The world's on a mission, conquest. Get to the top. We're not about that. Our God says, the greatest of all is at the bottom. Want to be the greatest? Be the servant of all. He has a, he has a bottom-up mentality, not a top-down mentality. He's just the opposite of the world. We have to separate. Jesus says he declared himself to not be of this world in, in John eight twenty three, And again, 1 John 2, 6, he says, if you are in Christ, you must live just as he did. You know, when, when people are asking Jesus, where's your crib? Where do you hang out? Where do you stay? I don't have a place to lay my head. He didn't accumulate anything. God, in his time here, accumulated nothing. What are we doing? What are we accumulating? It's crazy, right? 
We've got to separate from this world. His half-brother James says in James 4.4, 4, he said, A friend of the world is an enemy of God. That's amazing. A friend of the world is an enemy of God. Because we've been friends of the world, we've lost our influence. We're indistinguishable from the world. It's hard for the world to identify Christians and non-Christians. I know because I have a lot of Christian guys involved in our ministry, and they don't know who the non-Christians are. It's difficult for them to, to pick them out because they don't know where people are at. We're all basically the same. That shouldn't be at all. Our thinking, our speaking, our behaving should all be way different. The way we see the world should be way different. The way we respond to the world should be way different. The way we live in the world should be way different. Way different. So what does it mean to be separate from the world? Is it just our belief? Really, that's not working for us. Not only that, there's someone who believes in God far more than any of us do. And you know what? He's the enemy of God. Satan's a believer. Are you kidding me? He's a believer, right? He believes unequivocally in the reality of God. He was there when the foundations almost of the earth were laid. He held his arms around the glory of God. He's had his tail kicked by God so many times without number. He's a believer all day long. We've got to stop being believers and start being doers of this word of God. We need to be more actively engaged. So what can we do practically to separate from this world? I'm going to challenge you. The most practical thing you can do to separate from the world is start giving more and more. Give more of your money. That figures. The guy would stand up here and say that. The reality is, is why do we want money? Why do we hang on to it so much? Because it represents the comforts and the the future security we all want. But that's not our future. And again, we're not about the comforts. Why can't we live smaller with less stuff in order to give more to the work of God? The first church was selling all of its excess stuff. They didn't sell everything. They still had houses. They were meeting in homes. But they sold excess stuff. They sold everything that didn't matter, that they didn't need to survive. They decreased the cost that it was for God to have them, and they increased the return on investment God made into them. That's what we got to think. We're an expensive people on the payroll of God. And the yield that we give back to them is so small. In our businesses, if that was the case, we'd have to fire all of us. We all want return on investment. We've got to get more out of people, right? Well, God needs to get more out of us. He needs us to engage and be fully committed and to get out of this world so we're all about his world. So the most practical thing you can do to start separating from the world is give. Statistically, those under 40 give the least. They give a horrible amount. They give almost nothing statistically. That's amazing. That's terrible. And you can know that for yourself just looking at your own checkbook. We must give more. We just have to, to the work of God. Third, So we seek God more. We have to separate from the world. What's the third thing? The third thing, I think, is in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any and all as they had need. The third thing is we have to serve. If we're going to garner an audience for the kingdom of God, you and I have to serve more. People got to see us more committed to one another. 
Jesus did his miracles to gain an audience. You and I have to take care of each other more and more to gain an audience. That's what the first church did, and people were attracted to that. People are busted up these days with relationships. The relationships we have are almost non-existent. They're an inch deep and a mile wide. I know we have 4,000 Facebook friends, but we don't have very many intimate friends. Uh, One of the questions we used to ask guys in our ministry is, who are the six guys that are going to carry your casket? I don't know. They don't care. But the reality is, the point of the question was, who loves you? Who's committed to you? And who are you committed to? Who do you really love? How do you demonstrate that? You and I, every project we have at our house, we should have the whole rest of the church there. What would that look like if on any given Saturday, someone in your neighbor had 30 people there doing whatever it was that you needed done? That would be amazing. Your neighbors would start to ask questions. And they would see the love of God displayed practically in the people of God. There's a lot of things we can do to serve each other, and we need to start doing it. All the one another's in the scriptures are really about the house. We think about touching the world, and that's an asundry thing. Even the Lord Jesus modeled this, right? When a woman from Tyre came and said, listen, my daughter is demon-possessed. Will you heal her? He said, no, I only came for the lost sheep of Israel. That's amazing. Don't you find it? You're reading God, and God says, no, it's not my time. I'm, I'm local. This is a local ministry. This is what I do. I'm amazed by that. Now, the woman was faithful. She persevered, right? She said, yeah, but, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And he stood back. Wow. You have great faith. Be it done according to your desire. And she went home, and her daughter was healed. God's not oblivious to the needs of the world, nor does he not care. But it begins right here in this house. We serve one another. We love one another. All men will know you're my disciples, he said, if you love one another. We begin to take care of each other. We begin to look out for each other. We begin to be about the needs of each other. And as we're doing that, the world who doesn't have each other looks at us. When I was at uh, a corporate, I used to try to help people move all the time. Moving is a big deal. Most people have nobody to help them move. Maybe, maybe a brother. Uh, maybe one friend. We should have the whole church moving. Anybody that's moving. That would be amazing. People would be blown away. You have 48 people helping you move? That's incredible. That's beautiful. How do you get that? I just go to church. It's amazing. I go to a great church. Man, they serve one another. That's the key for us. We're not going to do many miracles. But every time we meet together, serve and love one another and give up ourselves, that's a miracle. Right? That is a miracle. When I'm not selfish, that's a miracle. That's my wife. She tries to keep score of them on her refrigerator, and there's a lot of room for more check marks. No miracles today. Another day, no miracles. Uh, God is looking for us, you and me, to serve one another, surrender our lives, love one another. He even said that to Peter, right? Peter's trying to reconcile with him. What else can I do to make up for my denial of you? And what does he say? Feed my sheep. Take care of my flock. The house is the first priority of God. And you and I can grow in our service to one another. So practically, what can we do to do that? First of all, we just have to have a mindset, a game-on mindset that says, see a need, meet a need. My wife preaches that all the time. See a need, meet a need. You see something that needs to be done, pick it up. I kind of change it in my house. I talk about owners and renters, especially to my teenagers. 
A renter could care less about the property they're in, right? There's trash on the ground. A renter says, that ain't my problem. Grass needs mowed. A renter says, that ain't my problem. Furnace needs fixed. A renter says, that ain't my problem. An owner says, man, I got to cut the grass. I don't want this trash in my yard. I got to fix the furnace. We should be owners. I teach my kids, you need to be an owner. You see the trash? Pick it up. You live here. And you cut the grass, right? I, don't, I haven't cut the grass in 12 years. It's great with 10 kids. I don't plan to cut it. I'm hoping I can get out and get into a condo before the last one leaves. <laughs> That's how I roll. i got a bad back. I'm in my 50s. I'm old. Uh, but God wants us to focus on serving, and if we see a need, just meet it. Instead of When you see people serving in this church, don't stand there and keep talking to your buddy. Just pitch in. Second, find a way to plug in. I've got to believe this church has a lot of ways for us to, to, to work, for you to go to work. The 80-20 rule works in most churches. Let's change that to the 20-80 rule, where 20% are slugs and 80% are working all the time. We need to be more doers of this word in this house, and there's probably lots of opportunity. All right, fourth is Acts 2.38. And the fourth thing we need to do, back up to 38, where Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So first, the church sought the Lord. We've got to know God's will if we're going to do God's will. Secondly, I separated from the world. We've got to remember we are a kingdom of God's own possession, a holy people separated from this world. We are now focused on the world to come. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Third, we serve one another to create not only the love that God said would demonstrate we're his disciples, but to attract the audience to the house of God. And lastly, number four, we share the person of God who is Jesus Christ. That's what we must do. We must share the gospel with others. When God began his, his ministry, he started out by, by calling guys to himself. He says, come, follow me. And... Here's, here's the purpose, here's the goal, here's the objective. Let me give you the ends before we even get started with the means. I want you to be fishers of men. That's the deal. You follow me, I will make you fishers of men. God's on a mission to have us be his hands and feet in the world to win the world to himself. Right? And he ends his time with us as a re- repeating that, whether it's Matthew 28 where he says, go and make disciples. That's his last words. Or Acts 1.8 when he's drifting off up into the clouds. He says, you're my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's what I want you to do. I find that an amazing story in Acts. I think the Bible's hilarious. Think about that. We're all around. Jesus is starting to elevate. And, and they're standing there watching him leave into, into heaven. The same way, he says, he'll come back the same way he left. They say, all of them, you're my witnesses. And what happens next? An angel comes and says, what are you doing? Stop standing here. Get back in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's coming so you can get to work. That's amazing to me. It just seems obvious. But whatever. You're not even thrilled with that story. One more thing. God's here. How many prayers did God give us? Now, I know the guy said, how do we pray? And he said, when you pray, pray this way, our Father, heart in heaven. But God himself gave us a prayer request. I think there's only one. That's all I found, but I'm not really a Bible scholar. 
Matthew 9.36, God's looking around. He says, you're harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And so he calls his boys over. He says, come here. Look out there. They're harassed and helpless. This is what I want you to pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out laborers into his harvest field, for it's ripe for harvest. It's ripe right now. People are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If we'll begin to ask God to send out people who will make a difference in this culture for the glory of God, I'm guessing that he's going to say, and you are the answer to my, your prayer. My prayer request is for laborers. You're praying it. You're my answer. Let's go. And it's an awesome thing for you and I to be able to participate in the work of God. Every single one of us is invited into that work. Most of the men I, I talk to and work with, they're always telling me they're not ready yet. They're not, they're not godly enough. They're not good enough. They don't know enough. We got this all wrong. See, we think once I know it all and I got it all and I have it all, then I'm ready to go. And what am I depending on? My own strength and ability because that's how the world works. In the kingdom of God, it works just the opposite. When you are weak, then who is strong? The king. We step out in faith. Faith is not depending on our own resources. He says without faith it's impossible to please him. We don't do enough to exercise faith. We need to go where we are weak. We need to go where we have no strength. We need to go where we are in fear and trepidation. One of the crazy things we do as a bunch of hillbillies is we homeschool. Tons of people say to us, we can't homeschool. Why not? Well, I'm not smart enough. Good. You're in the perfect place for the wisdom of God to come upon you and help you out with your children. Or, you know, we have all these hillbillies, 10 kids. A lot of people say, we can't have all these children. Why not? You know how expensive kids are? Nope. I'm dumb as a rock when it comes to that. Well, who are you depending on? Yourself. Stop depending on yourself. That's the whole problem. How effective is it? It's not working. We need to depend on God. We need to rely on God's strength. That isn't to test him, right? The evil one took Jesus to the top of the temple and said, Jump off! The angels will grab you. He didn't jump off. You shall not test the Lord your God. But walking in obedience by faith is not testing God. You're looking for the promises of God, as it says in Hebrews, to be fulfilled as a result of your walking in faith and obedience. Because God says he rewards those who do that. And you're just waiting for him to show up as you keep moving forward. That's the whole story of Exodus. Moses doesn't really know how this is all going to flesh out. God just says, keep moving. Keep going. Let's begin with parting the sea and go through it. What does it look like? I don't know. He don't care. God didn't give Moses the the 40-year plan. He gave him today's plan. Get going. And that's the way it is with us. Faith is daily. Faith is action right now, trusting God for the results. That's all he asks of us. In fact, he says we don't exercise that. Again, I already said that, though. We cannot please God without faith. We've got to come out of the closet, as another group did in the 70s. It's time for us. As Christians, we've been ashamed of the gospel way too long. We've bought this lie that, you know, always be witnessing, but, but if you have to, use words. You have to use words. You have to use words because no one knows Christ until you tell them about Jesus. It's not good enough to live it. In fact, I'd say that's not even where the game's played. 
You and I are not perfect people. We don't wait to share Christ till we're perfect. What we say is we're broken, messed up people in need of a Savior. And guess what? So are you, and you need one too, and his name is Jesus. It's not about being perfect and then winning the world. It's about loving God and telling people I ain't perfect. That's why I need a Savior. And every day I need a Savior, because every day I'm a train wreck at some level. We've got to stop being politically correct and be God's elect. We've got to stop hiding. We've got to stop worrying about how the culture perceives us, except for whether or not they see Jesus and if they're attracted in some way to him. Rome wasn't entirely attracted to Jesus just because the Christians were doing this stuff. They were getting slaughtered. They were getting beat up and persecuted. That's part of the package. Because the enemy of God has deceived some people, and they're going to hate you. In fact, Jesus said that if the world hates you, you're like me. We should be woe if the world doesn't hate us. If everybody in the world thinks I'm a great guy, that's a problem. I'm probably not very salty. My light's probably not very bright. Again, First Peter says, here's how I want you to share with humility and gentleness. We're, we're not obnoxious or overbearing. We're not Muslims. I'm not killing people over this. In fact, it's the opposite. I lay my life down for my friends. I give up so that they can go up. But you and I must be faithful witnesses. We must talk about Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You and I have to share that faith. And it's not a big deal. When he says, you're my witnesses, what's the testimony? This is what God's done in my life. Period. It's not rocket science, and it's not complicated. What has God done in your life? And if our answer is he hasn't done much, that's a problem. We should seek him to fix that. That probably means we're not exercising enough faith. We're not doing much for God. We should be in a constant partnership that challenges us and pushes us and results in us seeing him all the time. Because his glory, he desires to manifest through through us. We're his labor pool. It's his plan. He's the one that chose to be way more effective to put angels and cherubim into this mix and let us sit out. Right? I mean, how much more effective to have 50-foot beings with 20,000 eyes? I think it would be way more effective. But that isn't it. It's you and me on his team through whom he reveals himself. So what can I do practically to share Christ more? The easiest thing you can do is begin to pray for people. How many people you know that don't know Christ? And if your answer is, I don't know, maybe none. Well, why don't you start engaging people a little more to find out where they're at? I've got to believe you know some people that don't know Christ, especially in your neighborhood or where you work. And start praying for them. Lord, would you open their eyes that they might see your glory? Second, build a relationship with them. Just go out to lunch with people. Hang out a little bit with the pagans. Not to go to all their stuff. Just be a friend. Start building a relationship. Influence is a byproduct of relationship. You can't have influence until you have a relationship. So you need to build a relationship so you can have influence. And then third, expose those people to the greater body of Christ. Try to get more people engaged. Because the more they can see this body, the greater the reflection of Christ will be. You and I are just one dimension of Christ. But the body as a whole makes up the whole body. And they can see the whole glory, the whole beauty of Christ himself. This is not an individual sport. We're a team sport. 
We believe in unity, not diversity. We don't teach diversity. We teach unity. See, the scripture is clear, right? There is no male nor female. doesn't matter what color you are in Christ. See, these Christian companies, sometimes I work with them, I say, stop doing diversity training. It's just PC garbage. Diversity training continues to be divisive. It continues to separate people and talk about their differences. That's not Christian. Christian training is unity training. We don't care what color you are. We don't care what gender you are. We care that we're all on the same page following one true God, and we all have the same responsibility to do that. And at work, it should just be, here's our expectation. You need to show up. You need to put up. You need to shut up, and then I help you go up. And it's over. You can teach that to your teenagers. That's all it is. We don't need diversity training. We need unity training. That's what you and I are supposed to be. One body doing one work for one glory, the glory of God Almighty. So, two costs. So there you have it, right? We have to seek God. We have to separate from the world. We have to serve one another. We have to share Christ. Those four things. And that will result in two costs we have to pay. First is we have to sacrifice. This is no longer about us. We've got to come out of this. If we don't come out of ourselves, we're never going to affect the, the culture. No greater glory is this than a man lay down his life for his friends. You and I have got to surrender ourselves. Jesus called us, right? Deny yourselves, take up your cross daily and follow me. If we won't get serious about this, we're going to have the same results we got. You and I are a sacrificial people given to the glory of God forever. Our reward is coming. Our best days are ahead. No matter how good we have it now, these are not our best days. Our best days now will will be like our worst days. They will be the worst days we've ever lived. Our best days now will be the worst days we've ever lived because we're going to live in the kingdom of God, and it's not going to be anything like this. Our best days lie ahead, and because we're a future people, we're a kingdom people, we don't care about how it works out in this world. Some of us will lose our lives, right? That's the whole Hebrews thing. The great saints, some were eaten by lions, stoned to death, cut in half. Others got the promises. They had the victory. They beat up Goliath. Most of us want to be on that team. I get it. I'm with you. But we don't know. The king gets to make that decision. We're supposed to be in the game. That's it. Sacrifice. Second, suffer. Jesus said, the world, in Matthew 10:22, the world will hate us because they hated him. This is part and partial to the message. The world hated him in John, he says in John 7, 7, because he testified that the ways of the world were evil. How did he do that? Because he just lived differently. Certainly he talked about it, but you don't see the king just beating every up. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. So he's not negative, but he lives so differently the world couldn't take it. That's going to happen to us. We're going to suffer for that. And it might mean suffering because you're, taking, you're making different decisions. I don't need to take the next promotion to work 80 hours a week. I need to stay where I'm at so I can serve my church more, serve my family more, serve God more. I don't need it. The only reason I take the promotion is to make more money and have more position. I don't need it. I'm good. What I need is to serve God more. How can I do that? How can I serve God more effectively? It may mean be the promotion and have more influence. So, the question for us saints is, what do we want? Look around. What do we see? Where have we been? Where has this nation been? Where has this church been? 175 years this church has been around. Who are the great saints of this church? Maybe you've spent some time this year thinking back in the past. Maybe there's a historian or two among you, or maybe somebody should be. What great works has this church been known for? 
What great works is this church doing now? What great works is this church going to do in the next 175 years if Christ waits for this community, for this city? And I'll tell you what, if it's going to do any great works, it's going to be like the great men and women in the past who surrendered themselves. All the greats went last. They surrendered themselves to make God's glory known and greater things to happen. We have to decide what we want to be. Do we want to be great for the kingdom of God? The apostles did. They wanted to be great. And they had a little conversation, right? Who's the greatest? Jesus didn't say, don't, don't talk like that. That's not what he said. He said, you want to be the greatest? Be the servant of all. Go last. Put others first. Being great is awesome when it's for the glory of God and the ways of God. That's what he wants from us. So let's just do it. Let's start getting passionate about seeking God. Let's start getting serious about separating from the world and serving one another. And let's get serious about sharing Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for this morning. Thank you for the rich history that this church has in this community. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us the privilege of serving you. Father, we just confess that we are weak, that uh, we're ill-equipped by our own doing. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, who is sufficient, through whom you have empowered us to do all things for the glory of God. We pray, Lord, that we have more faith, more courage, that we take more chances for your glory. That, Lord, we would be willing to give up our lives in obedience to your command to lay them down and take up our cross. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we'd model your life, that though you were God, you did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. Instead, you made yourself a servant, taking the nature of a man. Please help us to humble ourselves before all men and be all men's servant that we might raise you up as Lord over all. You're a great God, Lord. I pray your blessing over this church. I pray your blessing on these saints. Father, may you help us all. Love you more with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as yourself, as ourselves, as you commanded. In Jesus' name, amen.